Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIO studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Hello again. So today, um, in this episode of Russian Roulette, uh, we've got a conversation with William Courtney. Bill Courtney is an adjunct senior fellow at the RAND Corporation, where he also is the executive director of the RAND Business Leaders Forum. He was a foreign service officer of the U.S. Department of State, rising to the rank of ambassador. Uh, and he was ambassador to Georgia, Kazakhstan, and the U.S.-Soviet Bilateral Consultative Commission to implement the Threshold Test Ban Treaty. Uh, he was an arms control negotiator. He um, prepared for the 1999 summit in Istanbul of the OSCE. He had a really, uh, really impressive diplomatic career and continues to be extremely active in the region, writing, uh, meeting with people, and doing really interesting work. So we were really thrilled to bring him in to talk about, well, a little of everything. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Welcome to Russian Roulette, Bill. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so I thought we would, I mean, you have you have such a wealth of experience in the region. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think it's going to cover mm. a lot. But I thought maybe we would start um, with Russia. You were recently there. I was recently there. Uh, what were your impressions? Uh, were you, you were in Moscow? Yes. And mm. mostly talking to experts, business leaders? Mostly business leaders, some experts, mm-hmm. and uh, taxi drivers. Taxi drivers. That's always a, a good way of gathering uh, information. Uh, what did the taxi drivers say, or what surprised you most about uh, this trip relative to your most recent trips there? So, as compared, I've been going fairly um, often now for about four years. I'd say taxi drivers now will use the phrase foreign adventures more mm. often. Mm. And they are um, concerned that some of that money that's being spent on foreign adventures could be better spent at home. Mm-hmm. This last time, of course, I, w- I was there right after the pension reform was announced mm-hmm. on the eve of the World Cup, which taxi drivers seem to see as cynical uh, yeah, effort. Yeah, at the Nislu China. Uh, and that happens in the U.S. too. Yeah. Uh, but this time, I think the, those uh, feelings were accentuated, that you know, a lot of people are concerned that men don't live, mm-hmm. may not live long beyond 65 in many cases. Although that was true when Franklin Roosevelt started Social Security in the 1930s. The proportion mm-hmm. of men who lived beyond 65 was not high. And just for our listeners who are not carefully uh, following uh, Russian domestic politics and or are listening to this months from now, uh, this is regarding the um, – Doom a debate and vote on uh, raising the mandatory retirement age for men to 65. Uh, and for women to what was 60. 60, 60 yeah. To 60, um, which is a five-year five uh, increase in both cases. Um, over time, da-da-da, but the idea is to put Russia in line with other uh, other countries, however, and to save money, and to save money, of course. But however, uh, because the Russian government continues to pay pensions, however, some twenty percent of Russian men do not make it to the age of sixty-five. Women live longer, right? Ironically, since they have a, a lower retirement age, uh, there is so much wrong with Russian retirement age policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's mm-hmm. a real challenge now. So I, I think what uh, what we're seeing is ordinary Russians are 
seeing that while Russia's been successful militarily in Syria, mm-hmm. Syria is a basket mm-hmm. case, and, and the Russians, as you know, have publicly called on the West to provide assistance. Right. We broke uh, it. You fix it. Exactly. Uh, the Donbass war has not gotten any better uh, for them. Uh, the ordinary Russians mm-hmm. see Ukrainians as generally more and more alienated and moving to the West, and then the pension reform. So a lot of Russians are asking if the economy is going to continue growing slowly, and the Russian economy is growing between a third and a fourth the rate of overall global growth mm-hmm. this year, which the IMF predicts to be about 3.9%. So that's a pretty slow rate of economic growth. So there's no future prospect that things are going to get better. So I think the combination of those things um, is causing some Russians, if I can make a comparison with the past, to see a situation that we saw at the end of the Brezhnev era and the Andropov, Chernyanko, the Zastoy, the era of stagnation. stagnation. More ordinary Russians now seem to see that after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, that their economy is growing slowly. And so when we uh, when we do the taxi driver or informal taxi driver polls of uh, of Russians, one of the things I've noticed uh, about my taxi drivers in Moscow and to a lesser extent other parts of Russia, but certainly in Moscow, is that most of them are immigrants. Yes. Um, you also have that experience? Uh, oh, yes. The vast majority mm-hmm. of them seem to be immigrants mm-hmm. in one place or another. The Caucasus or them, Central Asia. Caucasus, Central well, Asia. Well, the Caucasus, they're not immigrants. South Caucasus. Coming from South, South Caucasus. South Caucasus. Uh, but there are North Caucasian um, uh, taxi drivers as well. Um, most of them, though, have been there for some period of time. They're not just fresh right. people, so they, they understand No, no, I'm experience. just curious whether we think uh, it's representative, whether immigrant perspectives on Russian adventures abroad or Russian pension policy are representative of Muscovites or Russians as a whole. That's a, a good question. Uh, the demonstrations mm-hmm. that we're now seeing on the pension reform would kind of lead you to believe that maybe there's a broader concern. Uh, about the economic circumstances for for the people. And as you know, the real net disposable incomes of families are down probably 15%, give or take 5%, since 2013, before the oil price drop and before the Western sanctions hit. But even at that point, the Russian economy was growing slowly in 2013. And it's not surprising when one looks at at the structural economic barriers to growth, which have been growing over time. As you know, the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service announced a couple of years ago that in 2005, 35% of the economy was Mm state-controlled. In 2015, just a decade later, 70% of the economy was state-controlled. So that saps the potential productivity growth. I mean, another question I had about the conversations with taxi drivers is that there's always been this kind of divide between Moscow or maybe Moscow and St. Petersburg and a lot of the rest of the country. And we know that there's been more economic and political discontent uh, in Moscow relative to other parts of Russia. So did you have a sense either from this trip or or other recent travels to Russia about how representative this kind of of grumbling that that you heard from Moscow taxi drivers represents what people in other parts of the country think too? Uh, I do not have a good sense because I go only to Moscow Mm -hmm. uh, on my visits. Uh, We've seen some signs though, for example, some of the Navalny demonstrations now have taken place in 70 or 80 mm-hmm. cities. Uh, earlier, the Bolotnia 
square yeah. time. Mm -hmm. We didn't see quite such a broad geographic yeah. dispersion right. of unrest. So that would lead you to believe that there may be some concerns that are shared w more widely, mm -hmm. and especially now. I think the pension reform, probably safe to say, that's fairly widely shared in Russia. So what about the business leaders' opinions? Do they tend to agree with the taxi drivers, or is their perspective a bit different? I'd say, on average, uh, talking with business leaders, mm -hmm. they would like to see Russian leadership give more priority to economic growth. Mm -hmm. It seems often that when choices are made about big issues uh, between a, a security or foreign policy goal and an economic goal, that the goal is uh, the the policy chosen is more security uh, mm -hmm. yeah. oriented. Now, sometimes this can be because things change over time. So, let me give you an example. After the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, Western sanctions were really quite mild, and as you know, President Obama canceled them after he came to power half a year later. After the Ukraine invasion in 2014, the Western sanctions were a couple orders of magnitude greater. So that came as a probably a surprise to the, the Kremlin that the West responded so strongly. But I think from the perspective of business leaders, they see real economic costs in a number of these things, including now the Syria intervention in terms of isolating Russia from... Mm -hmm. from uh, so what do they want? What do business leaders want the Russian government to do that it's not currently doing? So Russian business leaders generally have uh, a view that they are not only business leaders in Russia, but they often have the potential to be business leaders in Europe and, and global uh, business leaders. Uh, take software engineering, for example. Russia, because of its strong mathematics tradition, is producing an enormous number of very capable software uh, engineers. Software engineering is a global profession. Lots of Russians end up in Silicon Valley or Latvia or Israel or other places to start companies. But business conditions in Russia are not really the best. And this is a problem for the Skolkova venture, right. which is, is really making a very good effort. But once you walk outside Skolkovo, the business conditions are not so good. So business leaders would like to see greater priority on um, improving the economy uh, at home and enabling business leaders to, to work globally and not be isolated because of political now, policies. How do you assess that the government is responding to these concerns? Um, obviously, it's taking steps like raising the pension age and the VAT tax and, and taking steps to try and raise more revenue. But in response to these rising concerns on the part of ordinary Russians and business leaders about slow growth, lack of competitiveness, and all the rest, I mean, do you have a sense that the, the Russian government is taking this seriously and is, is at least considering uh, taking steps that might ameliorate the problem? If you look at the steps that would be required to increase productivity growth, to unleash the power of the private sector, and Russians are very entrepreneurial, very capable uh, people. Uh, what we've seen recently is increase in the VAT tax and pension reform efforts. So those are stopgap measures, if you will, because the Russian economy is not producing enough and well, generating they're enough They're stopgap measures that help the state budget. They don't necessarily right. Well, and growth. raising the pension right. so does the, make sense. It does make sense, but it needs to be uh, um, combined with some steps to improve health Which uh, Russia, uh, Russia well. has done. I mean, the Russian, I mean, alcohol uh, abuse rates are down. Smoking is down. They've done a lot. Uh, so I would argue that the 20% of 
men who don't make it to 65, a fairly large proportion of them are doing it because they have not changed habits despite the large number of incentives that have been placed in front of them to change habits. So you're, you're correct. Mm -hmm. Just on mm -hmm. the street, you see fewer people smoking now yeah. than mm -hmm. they saw five or 10 years ago, which is really a positive development. But instead of you know, raising pension ages and raising VAT, it would be better for Russia to increase productivity of right. the economy, to grow the economy faster, to give higher priority. So if, for example, you wanted to improve the Russian economy, one thing that would, would do it would be to pull out of Donbass right away because the West has linked the major financial and energy sanctions to Russia's mm -hmm. uh, invasion of uh, sure. Donbass. So steps like that. Uh, could but, be taken. but do you actually hear Russian business leaders or experts, for that matter, say that's what Russia should do? Or taxi drivers? Uh, business leaders and experts are often cautious about talking about political policy, mm -hmm. foreign policy, certainly with a foreigner or with mm -hmm. an American. Uh, but when you talk with them about economic policy, it's fairly clear to see that there's some frustration that you know that Russia's great potential, which we saw a lot of in the 2000s when oil prices were high, that that great potential really needs mm -hmm. to be utilized more efficiently now by unlocking productivity in the economy. And yet the state is suppressing a lot of that through Can we talk a little influence. bit about the, the sanctions since you mentioned them? I mean, there's this perpetual argument here in Washington about how much of an impact the sanctions are actually having, both on the Russian economy and on Russian political behavior. I mean, just taking it from the economic side, um, how much of the stagnation that you talked about is a result of sanctions and how much of it is a result of kind of uh, endogenous problems with the Russian and which sanctions? I mean, I think that's also important. So the, the financial and energy sanctions are, are the most important. Uh, I believe the IMF World Bank have estimated mm -hmm. maybe 1% of GDP, which over time, that has a significant impact. But an additional part of that is that um, companies behave and banks behave not only based on the sanctions, but on concerns that sanctions could get worse, it could be additional. Mm -hmm. So there's a gray area beyond the legal sanctions, right. if you will which the market tends to treat as a no-go area. And that's had a significant impact, maybe as great as the actual sanctions mm -hmm. uh, themselves. And that won't necessarily go away. Um, I mean, even the sanctions might not necessarily go away if Russian behavior changes. I mean, that's what I hear in Moscow is even if we got out of Ukraine, for those who'll admit they're in Ukraine, sanctions aren't going anywhere. I mean, there's a really strong belief that, particularly after congressional action in the United States, that the sanctions were never really about Ukraine. They were always about containing Russia and punishing Russia. And now mm -hmm. the United States is even angrier at Russia. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated conversation because you do have the Ukraine-linked sanctions. And in Absolutely. a particular scenario, you could see those going away if Russia Well, and I would say the Ukraine. European sanctions will go away if the Russians take yeah. positive action in Ukraine. But then there's all the other sanctions which are linked to the things that you know Russia has done vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. political system and everything else. And some of those are mandated by Congress. And so you know, but, it may be yeah. a much so, different story. So what, you, what we hear now, and of course I hear that as well, um, is what the Kremlin, is part of Kremlin propaganda. Let me make a comparison. After the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in December 1979, the West had a very strong uh, adverse reaction to that invasion and increased pressure on the Soviet Union through various uh, measures, including some sanctions. The Kremlin propaganda at the time was, oh, the West is not 
you know, punishing us for invading Afghanistan. The West is just anti-Soviet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so really uh, Soviet behavior or misbehavior was not the cause. It was just a general Russophobia or Sovietophobia, sure. whatever. So we're hearing the same thing now. Uh, in fact, if you compare the period after the Afghanistan invasion in December 79 and after the NATO decision in December 1979 to deploy INF missiles to counter Soviet uh, mm -hmm. SS-20s, for a four-year period until NATO started deploying those missiles, uh, Russian propaganda, disinformation, and subterfuge, what they call active measures, the intensity of that was comparable only to what we're seeing yeah. Uh, now. But in fact, the Western position then was uh, if you pull out of Afghanistan or if we reach a treaty on INF, which we eventually did under Gorbachev, then those uh, Western pressures will be reduced or, or mm -hmm. go away. And that's, that's exactly what happened, although it took a liberalizer, Mikhail Gorbachev, to come to yeah. power to, to make that happen. And I, I wonder how analogous that situation is to the contemporary one, in part because of the congressionally mandated sanctions, the threat of additional congressionally mandated sanctions, and just whether there would be the same level of responsiveness uh, on our side this time, You know, even if you take the, the Ukraine mm -hmm. element out of the story. Well, that's, that's an important point. Uh, it would have been better if Congress had not put those sanctions into law because we saw from the Jackson-Vanek mm -hmm. Amendment in 1974 mm -hmm. that even after the um, uh, Soviet Union collapsed and there were no right. barriers to immigration of, of Jews uh, from, from Russia, uh, Jackson-Vanek uh, stayed on. So that, that's a real problem. And people told Russians after they invaded uh, Ukraine in 2014 that the longer you stay in there, less likely the Obama administration policy, which was very strict that if the Russians pulled out of uh, mm -hmm. eastern Ukraine, the financial, energy, and defense industry uh, sanctions would go away. But now that they're in law and now that Russia has added election interference to the pot, um, it's much harder to assess what sanctions, what U.S. sanctions would go away if Russia stopped doing certain things. So they have a point, the people who yes. think that there's no, no, no they, way out of this. They have a point. And, and people who, who are in favor of sanctions have a point, too. Uh, the Congress was outraged that Russian trolls sought to exploit the Parkland, Florida school mm -hmm. shooting, sure. for yeah. example, that this kind of thing is continuing. Right. And, I mean, there's a whole other conversation to be had about you know, whether sanctions are the only the best or the only appropriate tool in the toolbox for responding to different kinds of, of Russian action. And I think there are obvious reasons why those are the tools that we've mostly fallen back on. But I think sometimes it, it does create this lack of clarity about what the, the sanctions are designed to achieve and under what circumstances they could be pulled back. Well, that's a good point to, to look at Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So after we impose sanctions on Ukraine and the Europeans as well, I'm sorry, <laughs> on Russia. There was a choice to some extent, some trade-off. The U.S. and the West could provide more assistance, economic military assistance to Ukraine, mm -hmm. or it could impose more sanctions. Well, sanctions don't require the appropriated funds that aid. Mm -hmm. So there is a bias. And then because of their, the fact that they worked in South Africa and worked on Iran nuclear, now there's a perception that sanctions are are effective in every case, and that likely won't be the case. And you also have to look at the timelines for both Iran and South Africa yes. before you get too it takes, excited. It takes a, a, a long time.
Yeah. Well, and it also, particularly in the case of Russia, requires buy-in and support from American allies. Um, and so far, that has held, but I think there are questions about how long and, and under what conditions it'll continue to hold. Well, at the beginning, you'll recall, because the European Union has to re-up the sanctions every six mm-hmm. months, there were concerns that That's they wouldn't be persistent. But it turned out that the European Union saw the Russian uh, aggression in Ukraine as a direct affront to European values, to the European project. So Europe became pretty united. So the last round of um, the last decision by the EU, even though Italy had voted yeah. in a populist government, the issue of renewing sanctions was not controversial. No, I mean, I think the Europeans are going to be very much letter of the sanctions. It's the Americans, which again raises the question of which sanctions have more impact. And the European sanctions, I think, had the biggest impact. Um, But as the United States continues to graduate sanctions and leverage things that the United States controls and potentially impose secondary sanctions on other firms, on European companies and so forth, we run into a much more complicated The financial sanctions have had by far the most impact. London and New York Mm -hmm. are unique in the world as major sources of, of capital. After the sanctions were imposed by the West, the Russians said, well, we'll go to China. Well, it turns out Chinese banks don't do third-party lending. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese banks are mostly focused on lending for Chinese projects uh, abroad. So Russians were, were disappointed yeah. about that. With regard to the energy sanctions, one curious uh, technological development occurred. Uh, you'll recall the energy sanctions were U.S. energy sanctions were just for future energy projects. So right. the Exxon project and the Keras Sea was, was stopped. But in the last four years, fracking technology now has changed the economics of Arctic exploration for energy. Mm-hmm. And so that project, Exxon has announced now, is, is closed down from, mm-hmm. from their perspective. Because um, so there are cheaper alternatives so where they can the get fracking the, the volumes. The fracking yeah. revolution has had such an impact. So the financial sanctions are really important. And since the time of Peter the Great, Russia has depended on capital from, from Europe and the, the West. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's, let's change gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, shift our focus. Um, let's talk a little bit about Georgia, which has also been interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you certainly are very well positioned. You're following events. Uh, yes, I've been there a couple of times mm-hmm. in the last year. Uh, no. We're marking, I guess celebrating is not the right word, but we're marking the, the 10th anniversary of the Russian invasion in 2008. Um, you know, how how is, is Georgia doing in terms of dealing with the, the fallout of that conflict? Uh, so the conflict was, was difficult. Um, a colleague, uh, Ken Yalowitz, who was mm-hmm. ambassador in Georgia and I, um, we wrote an op-ed before the August 2008 war, a couple months before, uh, elucidating some warning signs that Russia was uh, planning to invade. Uh, and then Saakashvili, unfortunately, fell for a Russian provocation. Uh, Russians did come into both Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia in what was a well-planned, long-planned activity by the 58th Army, mm-hmm. which had just finished an exercise a week or two before mm-hmm. practicing an invasion of South Caucasus. Uh, since then, we've seen a couple interesting developments. One, uh, the um, propensity of Mikhail Saakashvili to taunt the Kremlin was not something that the U.S. wanted. Right. Uh, both uh, Saakashvili and Yushchenko in Ukraine did not do the West favors by, mm-hmm. by constantly taunting the Kremlin. Uh, the Georgian Dream government 
sub, uh, replaced uh, Saakashvili's government, and it's still um, advocating a westward direction for Georgia, but more practical cooperation yeah. with Russia. I am now told by my Georgian friends, who may or may not exaggerate, that Georgian wine has now supplanted Italian wine in the Russian market as the number two mm. below mm -hmm. French wine. Yeah. And Borjomi water is uh, widely available Borjomi in Russia. Borjomi water is certainly no. everywhere. The Georgian wine, I'm not so sure. Just from, from my informal survey of wine bars across Moscow. <laughs> Although I have to say the last time I was in Georgia, I remember hearing that um, close to 70% of Georgian wine exports now went to Russia. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, no, no it's really, it, it is back in yeah. a very big way. No, it's back. So the Georgians are pursuing a pretty good course now. They're, they are clearly very Western. They're more European-oriented than probably some of the countries in, in, the, uh, <laughs> in the EU uh, right. already. Won't name names. Um, so they're, they are going that way. Um, and, of course, the Ukrainians now are, and I've just spent mm -hmm. uh, two weeks in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, they are also... Um, very European, not quite as European as Georgians, but pretty close. What do you mean by European? Um, in their attitudes, their openness. For example, when you're in Georgia or Ukraine and you're talking with an expert or a political figure or a business leader, they don't show any restraint about expressing their views. When you're in Moscow, people are always a little cautious, you know, because the mm -hmm. power of the Kremlin is on people's lives is And when you're in Washington, factor. how are you feeling in Washington uh, these days? <laughs> <laughs> in Washington, there's certainly no fear. No shortage of uh, <laughs> No fear of uh, speaking, speaking out the, uh, by experts in, in Washington. So Georgia and Ukraine are both going to Europe, but their per capita GDP is well below the average per capita GDP of European uh, EU, European Union countries, right. and it's well below even the GDP of the poorest EU country, which but is Bulgaria. Bulgaria. So they need to focus on economic reform, productivity growth. Um, in both cases, for example, uh, they have uniquely uh, valuable potential for agriculture, different kinds of agriculture, mm -hmm. but both. But in neither of those countries can you freely buy and sell mm -hmm. land, collateralize it, mm -hmm. can banks foreclose, for mm -hmm. example. That's how America became wealthy in the first part of its life. Land reform is still not undertaken there. They're not going to be able to get to the European Union until they make fundamental economic reforms mm. that bring them yeah. up to well, be wealthy. Who knows what the European Union will be like by that point. I mean, I would argue that the reforms are necessary for their own sake, not for membership in the European Union, which may or may not be desirable by the time it, they get around to it. will be it. desirable. It will be desirable whether it will be on the table is another question. The European Union has been remarkably resilient over a period of time. You know, now we've, we've forgotten that uh, France and the Netherlands uh, voted against an EU constitution a few mm -hmm. years ago. So they've had setbacks and they have some issues now. But it's, it's the, probably the most remarkable positive achievement in the post-war era, more important than NATO in, mm -hmm. in many respects. And for Ukraine and Georgia, it is still the city on the hill that they they are yeah, aspiring to. But I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I do, I do think that a mistake was made in arguing that the carrot is membership rather than the carrot is a thriving economy. I don't know. I, I think the carrot of, of membership was something that the Europeans could hold out. Except that they really can't. Is well, they can't necessarily 
provide membership. I think that's probably a step too far at this point, but they can provide deepening integration short of membership and a path to perhaps and eventual I, membership And I would argue point. that it obscures the point that because it, make, it, it enables people to think that the membership is how you get the good economy rather than thinking that I need the good economy anyway, whether or not EU membership or EU association right. happens. I just want, you know, I want my people to live well. And right. it's not that's EU right. membership that's going to make my people live well. It's that if my people live well, EU membership may become an option. Right. But mm-hmm. if the possibility yep. of getting things like liberalized travel to the EU, more European but, investment but again, is part of the package, I think that makes some of the, the so medicine let's easier talk to about travel, particularly for people under the age of 40 in Georgia and Ukraine, this visa-free travel now is by far the most important manifestation of those two countries going Mm -hmm. closer to Europe uh, and uh, achieving uh, uh, association agreements. I have a palpable feeling when I talk with young Russians that they would love to have visa-free travel to the European Union, and they, they really envy um, Ukrainians and Georgians mm-hmm. for, for having that. And Russia is every bit as, as European um, as as any of the other countries to, to its west. Um, and they too, you know, young people, young people in those countries, they all want to grow up to be maybe Russian and European or Ukrainian and European or whatever. They don't want to be walled off uh, from the world. So you were in Ukraine for a little while. What's your take uh, on the political uh, situation there? There's presidential elections coming up. There's a lot of jockeying. It's still not entirely clear who's going to be running. Reforms continue not to be quite uh, what uh, was promised. So there's a lot of frustration in Ukraine with the political system. And to step back, um, you know, I was, was in Kazakhstan early on. Um, Kazakhstan made a lot of economic reforms, but not democratic reforms. Mm-hmm. Ukraine made democratic reforms, but not economic right. reforms. Absolutely. You know, they've had alternations in power with mm-hmm. new governments peacefully uh, achieving uh, office. Uh, but Ukraine just does not seem to be able to organize itself. So currently, the IMF has dispersed only half of its current package because mm-hmm. the Ukrainians are unwilling to make certain um, key reforms. That may happen over time, but what you're impressed by in Ukraine is the strength of civil society. It's very strong, non-governmental organization, people willing to organize. They're frustrated with their political leaders, but they have the substance underneath in order to solve those but they problems. Can't, but they haven't solved them, right? I mean, they, well, they managed to get a, a new government in power, but they continue to have the same problems. So they've made a lot of reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they've moved ahead a lot of way. Energy. Pricing has been one key area, although it hasn't gone all the way. Uh, one project I visited, the Eurasia Foundation, and full disclosure, mm-hmm. I'm on the board of the Eurasia Foundation, uh, is um, carrying out a project for uh, e-procurement okay. uh, and for open data mm-hmm. uh, and using technology to make government function more effectively. More uh, transparently. Does that extend yes. to defense procurement? So yeah, uh, I don't know if it does or not. That's a good question. It may <laughs> it's not. It's one of my pet topics. <laughs> it may not. But the government uh, just announced recently that uh, this e-procurement has saved the government $2 billion. Well, this is the kind of reform that has gone ahead and increased the efficiency of government or the quality of governance without goring the ox of a specific mm-hmm. oligarch. And that seems to be the problem for some of the reforms. Yeah. So what's your prediction for Ukraine? Ukraine and Georgia are both going to Europe, but they both have to become 
economically more productive to do it. European, by going to Europe, you mean? They're, they're going to we're going to pick f- them up and we're going to move <laughs> them further <laughs> see west. The, see, <laughs> see the future. When I when I went to Kazakhstan in 1992, mm-hmm. right after the Soviet collapse, I remember talking with a senior European official um, about uh, Ukraine, and I had the impression that, that he saw Ukraine as a, a kind of Christianized version of Turkey, mm-hmm. a large country close to Europe, but not really of Europe. Mm-hmm. 25 years later, as we've seen now to the response uh, to mm-hmm. the Russian aggression, Europeans see Ukraine as Europe. They mm-hmm. see Europe as really Europe. They, and just they see Turkey as something else entirely. And they, unfortunately, and Russia is just confusing. <laughs> that's that's uh, still the case. Now it's interesting to me the extent to which European has become an identity that's um, not entirely tied to geography, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the fights over it are mm-hmm. fights over identity that are not tied to geography. Yeah, I mean, um, I think you see this on the Russian side too, where they argue, or you know, the, the Kremlin argues that they're they're the real Europeans. They're advancing a vision of Europe that is more in line with historically what Europe has been, and that the EU's version of Europe is somehow a, a postmodern anomaly. Um, and obviously that narrative finds a certain amount of resonance in places like Budapest and Warsaw and, and even places further west. Yes, the Ru- Russia... So let me go back one step. In the Cold War, West Germany did not want to be the eastern edge of Europe or the eastern edge of the alliance. When Germany unified, Germany did not want to be the eastern edge. Poland does not want to be right. the eastern edge. It's important for all the countries to, to the see. The Baltics want to be the eastern edge. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, they do. <laughs> they'd be more secure and more happy if they had they Europe on their eastern border. May, they, maybe, but they, they uh, don't yeah. believe that's a possibility and they don't trust in that possibility very much. It's important for Russia to see that the countries to its west are potential bridges to Europe yeah. or, or actual bridges to Europe, not barriers to Europe. It's important that Ukraine or Georgia, or Belarus, not evolve in a way in which they see being a barrier to Russia as being part of Europe as, as part of their national strategy. Uh, Russia, Russian misbehavior in Ukraine especially, for example, uh, is making this difficult. But over the long run, uh, Russia has so many uh, cultural, economic, political other interests with Europe that it needs to be part of Europe and therefore it needs, its strategy toward Ukraine and Belarus and Georgia should take account of yeah. that. So, you know, uh, during the Cold War, there was this term Eastern Europe and that was places like Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary. But we don't call those countries Eastern Europe anymore, right? Because they're geographically at the center of Europe and with the sort of expansion of this European identity and the extension of the European Union, they're back in the in the middle of Europe. They're not really the eastern fringe anymore. Um, and so now, I mean, to the extent that there is such a thing as Eastern Europe, it is these countries along it's Russia's Russia. border. Well, Russia is Eastern Europe. Um, well, that's an interesting uh, question, they're, they're but it's certainly Belarus and Ukraine. And if, you, no, if you talk to a Ukrainian, um, I think they've they, decided they're Central Europe. They, they see themselves, the phrase Central and East yeah. Europe, come out, they see themselves squarely there. And you know, they might point out that, well, from Eastern Ukraine border over to the Ural Mountains, maybe that's Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. But, but you're right. The East Europe phrase has just disappeared now. And, and that's really a, a positive development. Should we talk about Kazakhstan a little bit sure. also? I mean, you've done so much yes. work and continue to do so much well, work with the Kazakhs. Um, there's been a lot of uh, 
of talk about succession in Kazakhstan on the one mm-hmm. hand, and then with Uzbekistan's uh, experiment mm-hmm. with liberalization, what the impact of that is for Kazakhstan. What are you seeing when you visit? Incidentally, also a, a country that, as people in Kazakhstan will point out, partially lies in Europe. So Kazakhstan has been remarkably successful in its economic development. Um, the Tengiz project that Chevron developed initially was the first huge energy project anywhere in the former uh, Soviet space. Uh, Kazakhstan has attracted other major investment in the energy area. It made economic reforms. Both Kazakhstan and Russia are classified by the World Bank as upper-middle-income countries. That's a, quite an achievement from 25 years after the Soviet collapse. Uh, for Central Asia, though, political development has lagged considerably um, other other areas. And for Kazakhstan, it has been uh, a much lighter authoritarian system, if you will, than to the south in Uzbekistan. With the change in, in Uzbekistan, um, I think Uzbeks were surprised at how much pent-up pressure there was for liberalization in Uzbekistan, which we saw after Kalimov died, and which his acolyte, Mezuyev, led has led the way in, in developing. I think a lot of people in Kazakhstan are wondering, well, are we also going to be in a circumstance like that? Kazakhstan has had the wisdom to send thousands of students to the West for education on a Boloshak uh, program. Uh, There are a lot of young people there who uh, see great potential for Kazakhstan in the future, but Kazakhstan control, the government controls so much of the economy and so much of political life that it's not really possible for these talented young people to reach their full potential. Uh, Once President Nazarbayev leaves the scene, there will likely be uh, a more (coughs) democratic, if you will, uh, a more pluralistic debate about the future of Kazakhstan and its future leadership than we saw in Uzbekistan. So it might be a little bit less stable, but it's likely to result in a more pluralistic possibility uh, for the future. And for Kazakhstan, it's important that that be a moderate solution because Kazakhstan is wedged between Russia and China. It cannot adopt an extreme policy. For example, Uzbekistan has had extremely critical policies of Russia over a period of time. It doesn't border on Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, Kazakhstan borders there. So most likely we're going to see moderate solutions in Kazakhstan. And we're seeing also changes in the correlation of forces. As you know, the Chinese economy is still growing at rapid rates. China has um, is investing a lot of money in Central Asia, including the Belt and Road Initiative. China has been careful not to challenge Russia's, um, let's say, privileged position in terms of political and security. Mm-hmm. But as we know from international diplomacy in general, um, the flag flawless trade often, and so China's interests are are probably going to be greater in the political and security area in, in Central Asia. So it's important for Kazakhstan to have Western support, Western involvement to help. Kazakhstan balance Russia and China, and support for Kazakhstan to have good relations with all of its neighbors and, and with the West. So I think we're likely to see positive uh-huh. development for Kazakhstan. So another country where there's been uh, a somewhat surprising, uh, to us anyway, change uh, that also feels somewhat positive is Armenia. You know, Armenia had a pretty solid democracy going until the guy who became uh, um, Sarkisian. Sarkisian. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, who took uh, the reins 10 years ago, decided to stick around 
but then protests toppled him. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, what's your take about what happened in Armenia and what Armenia's future is? Well, it's interesting. Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia are three completely different countries right right next to, to each other. So what we've seen is a genuine popular revolution in Armenia, but it's a popular revolution that has not had a notably westward or eastward push. Right. They want so the democracy. They don't want the West. That's, uh, they, they haven't really mm-hmm. gone in that direction. So right after Pashinyan took power, he flew to Sochi and mm-hmm. told Putin he wanted to maintain the strategic relationship. Mm-hmm. And from a military standpoint, given the amount of weaponry yeah, I was going to say not that he had a lot of has, choice. That's right. But the Kremlin has not been comfortable with genuine popular uprisings, um, certainly in Georgia and, and uh, Ukraine. Well, it doesn't believe they exist. It doesn't mm-hmm. believe they exist. It mischaracterizes mm-hmm. them. Which is why this one's so confusing. Diminish, diminishes <laughs> them. So if I can make a comparison, the Kremlin has always used a relatively light hand in dealing with Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. And there have been no major crises mm-hmm. over the last 25 years. Yeah. If the Kremlin uses a light hand with Armenia, uh, as it seems to be doing up till now, uh, and that revolution focuses mainly on improving development inside mm-hmm. Armenia, both economic and, and political, um, then that would be a, a solution that would reduce the risks of crisis. And the, the West does not need any more crises with Russia. But if the Siloviki in the Kremlin become suspicious that the popular revolution in Armenia is something mm-hmm. that may go westward. That this is they, an orange revolution. That right? this exactly. is a, it's a western yeah. flawed color revolution, controlled a, chaos, all the things that they yes. mm-hmm. And if they use a heavy hand at some point, well, you remember the Armenians were not too happy to be forced not to sign the Association Agreement with the European Union and to accept a second best uh, solution. So if a heavy hand could could drive that revolution in a western direction, and with Georgia right next door and Ukraine not too far away, um, there could be potential there. So I think it's important for the Kremlin. Would that be a good thing? Uh, it would be better for there not to be a crisis, for Armenia to develop on its own, mm-hmm. uh, to liberalize democratically and economically, however the Armenians think. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that best. the regional politics for Armenia are quite complicated, though, in part because of the Russian military presence, in part because of the closed borders and the conflict with Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anything – Armenia, I guess, has less room for maneuver around a lot of these issues just because it faces a lot of major security challenges in and around its its neighborhood. Yeah. No, no that's that's right. Bill, this was exactly what I hoped for. We covered so much, okay. and I think most of uh, Europe and Eurasia in forty-five minutes. Exactly. We're I, I'm so pleased you were able to join us. We need to no, have you back sure. for another no, uh, for another the rapid I, tour de force around well, I, <laughs> the, the uh, continent. I, it's probably not good for me to come back until I've had more time talk to taxi drivers. Yeah. And yeah. No. Absolutely. Okay. We, and other we, places. We all need to do more field research first. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so yeah. much. Okay. You're Thanks. quite welcome. Thank you. Okay, that's it for our show today. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, You can find a link to Bill Courtney's bio in the show notes. 
And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're at it, uh, maybe leaving us a rating and or a review. Um, If you're not an iTunes user, you can check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play. And there's also SoundCloud. And this is your biweekly reminder to please send us your mailbag questions. Uh, You can email them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, We'll do another mailbag segment here where we answer a bunch of your questions soon. Please don't forget to follow the program on Twitter. Um, CSIS Russia and Eurasia is at CSIS Russia. You can also follow Jeff and me directly. I'm at Olya Oliker, and Jeff is at Dr. J. Mankoff. And, of course, uh, a big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, uh, our interns, Leah Halikova and Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Bye.